A Podcast One production. COVID-19, it's like nothing we've ever lived to see. A worldwide pandemic which has stopped us in our tracks. And as our health system strains and our economy nearly breaks, it's up to our elected officials, politicians, to deal with it. And the big question is how? I'm Adam Peacock, and on this episode of Peacock Politics, I want to work out how politicians work through one almighty crisis and try and come up with what's best for Australia in a situation which, on face value, has no upside. My guest is a man who was in government when Australia last faced the crisis, the global financial one in 2008, which, with all due respect, seems like a teddy bear's picnic compared to a pandemic. Craig Emerson was in Kevin Rudd's Labor government then. He was Minister for Small Business when the GFC hit and has a background in economics. Craig, thanks for joining me. Mate, first things first, I hope you're healthy. Oh, yeah, seem to be. <laughs> Hitting well, clocking up my kilometres in splendid isolation from everyone. And that is how we're recording this. You're in your, your backyard. We're in isolation. We're well removed from each other. We're doing all the right things. And That's uh, right. I've just spotted a couple of galahs and uh, they're within a metre of each other, so I'll just go and chew them apart. Mate, let's get to some of the talking points in a subject which, I mean, is just mind-blowing in itself. But the human side first. What is the feeling like in the pit of a stomach of a politician when faced with a monster of a problem like this? Well, they're elected to lead and they actually, you know, politicians seek to be in positions of leadership. Um, They're not uh, just there to make up the numbers. In fact, uh, just about everyone who... Uh, is elected to parliament, think that they can be, if not the leader, then at least a a member of the cabinet. So this is the sort of thing that they're kind of, in a sense, um, uh, feel, you know, calling, and I'm going to be a bit noble about it, to do this sort of thing. But to answer this, your your question directly, I don't think too many people would have said, oh, yeah, okay, if I get in a cabinet, I'll get to deal with something like this, you know. Um, So I think they'd do it with... um, a desire for the best possible outcome, but also with a large amount of trepidation as to about whether they're getting it right or not. Does dread come into it at all? Absolutely. And and again, I'm going to say something in defence of politicians. It's not just dread that their careers might be affected, you know, and, that, and I know there's a, a view in the community that's all that politicians think about. The dread would be that if they have um, made the wrong decisions or made them too late then a lot of people will suffer. So there's a lot at stake, and um, I'm sure that's what's in the minds and the hearts of the government and also the Labor Party in opposition. They've been very, very strongly saying that they're lending bipartisan support. They reserve the right to, say, you know, express a view as to whether the whole show should be locked down more severely or not. That's okay, but I don't think anyone's actually playing politics and seeking to get some sort of political um, return from this process. And unfortunately, as much as the government tries to help in these situations and it it happened in the GFC and it's happened before as well, you want to help everyone, but you can't help everyone. I guess everyone's knocking on the door of their either local politician or the, the minister or Canberra and however they're doing it, I'm not sure, through lobbyists or themselves or letters or correspondence. Everyone's knocking on the door for help. I just can't get my head around how a politician or the ones in in leadership at the moment are trying to prioritise all of that and essentially putting people or groups to the back of the queue because there's more important things. That must be a pretty hard thing to do to to try and prioritise. Well, I don't think they are. I think they're trying to do things at the same time. So 
uh, for example, gig workers are not being pushed, you know, to the back of the queue. In fact, they're, they're probably getting earlier attention through this coronavirus payment. Um, when I'm talking about gig workers, um, you know, people who play a bit of music, but often they're students and they're paying rent. And so they're pretty, they've been pretty worried, but they get $550 a fortnight on top of the $550 a fortnight that they ordinarily would be entitled to. So it's not really a queuing issue, it's identifying the problems. And you see, with the Commonwealth of Australia, you've got to get the service delivery mechanisms. The, what I mean by that is federal governments use Centrelink and they use the tax office. Um, it's one thing to say, oh, we, we want to get money to people, and it's another to actually do it. And so what they have to do is design um, programs that can be delivered through pretty much existing mechanisms. The states are actually more used to delivering services directly, you know, whether it's education or health and so on. And they've been chipping in big time as well in terms of their own budgets, the amount of money that they're making available, which is often for... Um, things like rent relief or relief from payroll tax for bigger employer employing businesses and so on. So there's a national cabinet and what they mean by that is really the Council of Australian Governments. It's the Prime Minister but all the state and territory leaders as well and they're meeting um, online, oh, it must be every couple of days, to see how much coordination that they can achieve not only on the economic front which we're discussing but on the health front you know to what extent should people be closed down you know is it a real tight shutdown which is what they did in china what they're pretty much doing in new zealand or is it true that in some states let's say the northern territory or outback western australia you know there's not a strong case to shut everything down and so you know yes we're a single country but we've got a lot of variability across the country and that probably does argue for a bit of flexibility and approach. You touched on it there with the states and the federal government with the national cabinet and I'll go back to that in a moment but can you paint us a picture about what's going on behind the scenes? Does so, it mayhem? So, so things are happening all the time you see you're not you don't actually have a crisis arrive and then it's just sits there while you attend to it. The crisis keeps shifting and uh, for example I think it was the Ruby Princess, that vessel that um, where they unloaded 2,700 people, a number of whom had coronavirus. The Commonwealth and the state of New South Wales were blaming each other. But in the meantime, people uh, left that vessel, got on planes, and now in Western Australia, there's uh, coronavirus because some of the people on that vessel in Sydney ended up in WA and gave it to others. I use that as an example to uh, answer your question, and that is stuff happens all the time. I mean, I've seen the movies about Winston Churchill and he had the, those, I've been to the war rooms in London, so he's had this yeah. central kind of area where everyone gathered and everyone bounced ideas off each other and action was taken well beneath 10 Downing Street in the, the inner west of oh, London yeah. right there. So is it a similar situation in Parliament House that all of the senior politicians are close together, they're in constant well, contact in one sure area? That they're all in Parliament House, you see. This is very different. You can see why they'd, the technology wasn't available in World War II for video conferencing. And so if you see some of the images, for example, of this... Um, uh, national cabinet, uh, they're not 
in the same room. The, the premiers and chief ministers are in their own states and territories, and the prime minister has publicly known that he's actually um, ensconced at the lodge. So he'd be going presumably to Parliament House where the technology exists and it's very sophisticated. So, yeah, different time, different uh, technologies for different eras and I wouldn't assume that everyone's, you know, bunkered down in one room. They're actually quite spread um, in terms of all the people who are making the decisions. It's quite decentralised physically but not uh, in terms of the communication. It's quite centralised. The other complication is the states and territories and the Commonwealth are taking advice from chief medical officers. Now, there's nothing that compels them all to have the same view. Mm. And then you've got to make judgments, you know. There'll be obviously a human disposition to see if they can reach a consensus. But there may be difference of view, and that will lead different um, states and territories towards a different philosophy. One being, as I mentioned, the New Zealand philosophy, which is lock down and strangle the virus. That's the idea. The other says, well, if we lock everything down and we don't know when we can open it up, we could actually be strangling the economy and destroying a very, very large number of jobs and businesses. So there's a kind of competing philosophies, and I understand both perspectives on that. And every waking hour, those in power at the moment will be thinking, or every waking moment, not hour, second almost, they're, they're thinking of how to help, what to do, what action to take, in all of this, I mean, how many hours are they punching out a day? Is there just a complete lack of sleep because you're always on the phone, always looking for updates, always looking for that to get ahead? Look, I'm going to say it's a bit different from wartime. And, you know, you use that analogy because, you know, there's battles taking place in far-flung places, particularly in World War Two. You think of John Curtin, you know, and he's, you know, issued orders and so on. And he doesn't know how a battle is going. And, and I think that killed him in the end, you know, in terms of his health, mm. because he was ordering young men into battle and didn't even know the consequences of that. Um, so it's not quite, it's not like that, and it's not like there's something happening every second. So I, I don't think there'll be um, pandemonium. I think, however, that there would be processes whereby people have to receive and then absorb news as it's coming through. But in Australia's case, there's a level of predictability about this, and that is, you know, there was a, a spike in cases that seems to be flattening. What do we do about that? You know, there's a certain logic and, and analysis around it. So I wouldn't paint a picture of pandemonium and people running around, you know, in panic. I, I don't think that would be the case at all. Who comes up with the ideas of things like stimulus packages to inject into the economy to keep things ticking over like you guys did with the Labor government. So you were involved heavily in that in 2008 in protecting the yeah. economy and, and people's livelihoods uh, through the global financial crisis. Usually economists and not exclusively, of course, but they kind of are supposed to have an idea about how things work. And here's the sort of binding philosophy. During a, a crisis, an economic crisis, yes, you're trying to protect people's livelihoods. It's not just protecting GDP, you know. It's not protecting a statistic. It's protecting um, people's livelihoods, and that involves protecting companies that employ them. And so we don't want to see this dichotomy between the workers and the bosses. The workers work for the bosses, so they've got an interest in, you know, both got an interest in, in, the, in the company or the business, small business, uh, continuing to operate if it can. 
the way that I think about this is what you're trying to do is to keep the businesses connected to the economy and the workers connected to the businesses. Once that all breaks down, people become unemployed, businesses go bankrupt, and then you've got to pick up the pieces at the other end. And this is why Prime Minister Morrison is talking about hibernation, which I think is the right term. People aren't going well, but if you can keep those connections, then when the virus is dealt with, the connections are maintained and then you can keep going, come out of hibernation in the spring. And I think that's the right way of thinking about it. Otherwise, you're doing a, there's a lot of destruction going on and it's so much harder then on the people affected and to orchestrate a recovery at the end of it all. How important are the various stages, starting with the initial stages of reaction and who does, say, the Prime Minister in this instance consult with? Is it fellow politicians do you draft in experts and consultants to help you out? How is it done in a collective Well, manner? in the first instance, you'd uh, go back to 2008. It was the so-called Gang of Four, which was um, the Prime Minister, the Deputy Prime Minister, the Treasurer and the Finance Minister. And they were Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, uh, Wayne Swan and Lindsay Tanner. Usually for this sort of thing, that's what you need to do. You can't, for every decision necessarily involve 20-odd people from the Cabinet. And so um, a process is that the Cabinet gives a small group, you know, authority to develop up proposals. And it might need to come back to the Cabinet. Uh, I know in Kevin Rudd's time, they didn't go back to Cabinet that often because things were moving so quickly. And that really, you know, would have meant that the agility that was required couldn't be achieved. So that's the way I think it would operate. politics in all of this, the them v us nature of day-to-day politics, opposition v government. Does that take a back seat in situations like this? it does. And Anthony Albanese has has said, look, I'd rather be known as the leader of the Labor Party than the leader of the opposition because I don't want to create an impression that my job is just to oppose for the sake of opposing. So even before they saw the last package that came to Parliament, they actually said they'd pass whatever it was. They might move amendments, they might make a few speeches, but they weren't there to obstruct or slow down things at all. And, you know, that's what you'd kind of expect during a crisis. You certainly would expect that during wartime, um, and and that's what's being delivered. Uh, So I think that's a very sensible approach. Is the Prime Minister, is he the one that makes the final decision on absolutely everything, or is he heavily guided by those around him? Oh, no, he'll be guided, but in the end, you know, that's why you have Prime Ministers. Usually the Prime Minister and the Treasurer would work very, very closely together, and you'd expect the Prime Minister would be strongly influenced by the Treasurer and the Treasury. You see, I've mentioned, you know, a bunch of economists. There are economists in the Prime Minister's department, But, of course, there's plenty of economists in Treasury. Um, And the Treasurer has responsibility for managing the nation's books. So I would think the Prime Minister, the Treasurer, and maybe a couple of other key ministers, you'd certainly want the Health Minister involved. And, you know, Greg Hunt has been heavily involved, at least in the health um, dimensions of all of this, including the mental health ones, which we shouldn't underestimate. You know, the, the stress, the anxiety... Um, of workers and of small business owners in particular as to whether they're going to get through this. 
Collaboration with the states. Take us through that. It is rather important because the states know how to deliver services. The federal government has a little bit of a more hands-off approach to that with overarching things like the tax system and and welfare payments. How does it all mesh together in a situation like this? Because you're taking little pieces of the political puzzle in Australia and trying to put them all together quickly to to come up with something going forward. So those meetings occur very often. It's not once a week. It's it's far more often than that. And it might be a needs-based, you know, where, where an issue is coming up. A state, for example, might say, hey, listen, we're, we're really getting very anxious. You know, we want to do a heavier lockdown or, and so on. And then that group will get together again online. It is a bit challenging in Australia. You know, there's a big difference between Kalgoorlie and the centre of Sydney. And so, you know, what might suit the centre of Sydney or be required for the centre of Sydney in terms of lockdowns and so on, particularly, you know, remember the Bondi Beach images. Mm. Well, you know, they won't be shooing too many people off the beaches in Kalgoorlie. Um, so what I'm really saying is that uh, it's kind of horses for courses and you're going to get different um, state leaders with different perspectives based basically on, you know, the rate of infection and the diversity of cities and towns within their own states and territories. That must be so difficult to keep everything moving in the one direction. Like one state might want to go off and do its own thing in in one regard and it's like the federal government has to corral them back in or the other states has to corral them back in to push in one direction. Well, you will have seen maybe some media reports of, say, New South Wales and Victoria having a particular perspective and the PM saying, look, we understand that. And so you see in, I think, Victoria, one of the states is just going into stage three restrictions, you see. So it, it can be the case that a state or a territory has a different approach, which the PM has said, we recognise that because of the diversity across Australia. So it's not as if there is a single rule, you know, for everyone in every, every state and territory in every circumstance. One thing I've learned from this series is the differing ideologies, if you like. It was back in series one, actually. We went through each major party or major side of politics and kind of got to the bottom of what they stood for. And, and for instance, the coalition, the National Party and the Liberal Party, small government, business running the economy, if you like, and, and yeah. a lot of talk about protecting jobs and lowering taxes and, and labour that was about helping people as social services, maybe a bigger government, if you like. But does a crisis like this totally throw ideology out the window? If it doesn't throw it out the window, it puts it in the kitchen. (laughs) Um, And that is, you've got a government which is a conservative government spending a lot of money that they ordinarily just wouldn't contemplate, but it is a crisis. And so you'd have a Labour opposition in this case saying, well, they should be spending a lot of money. Well, they are spending a lot of money. You've seen a Conservative government saying, we are going to look after the most vulnerable. That's what Labor would be saying. So, you know, the, the, the philosophies are kind of discarded or another analogy is that they merge and you don't get this, you know, kind of constraints that would apply in everyday uh, politics in times of a crisis just as you wouldn't, I don't want to always compare this to a war, but people would understand, you'd hope that there wouldn't be two different philosophies towards a war if Australia was involved in a war or was under under threat. And so, yeah, there's a powerful force here to encourage both sides of politics to just put their 
you know, ideological philosophies aside. And I'll give an example of this. I read that um, Scott Morrison is in regular contact with Sally McManus at the ACTU. I think that there's a lot of work going on with the union movement. I think there's union leaders who are saying, okay, we need to change our position on some issues in order to keep businesses afloat. Well, that's terrific, I think. And when normal times resume, I'm sure unions would be bargaining for good wages and conditions. But at the moment, they recognise that this is a crisis and they want to keep as many people employed and engaged with their businesses as possible. So you're not getting from the union movement or the Labor Party um, you know, the big bad bosses or the multinational corporations. You don't see any of that sort of thing. Does this have the chance to shape in a different way how our political system runs and, and how those inside the political system act? Uh, no, not in terms of the political processes and values. Labor will always be Labor. Liberals will always be liberal. But what it may well do is reshape the way economies operate because we've all, or at least the vast majority of politicians, one way or the other, have accepted that the Australian economy should be mixed you know, with a safety net, but actually driven by private initiative and private enterprise. There just may be, in the future, a lot more thought to a more regulated economy. For example, think of strategic industries. We think of strategic industries as sort of defence industries. Well, will we have our own oil refineries in the future if people are worried about this sort of thing happening again? Um, will there be other industries that, such as, um, for example, steelmaking, uh, where possibly there'll be an argument about, well, we should have our own steelmaking industry um, even if it's not the most efficient in the world? Should we have the same reliance on a single country such as China. So in other words, there might be a, a bit of a drift away from, you know, the fully integrated international economic system. And I think that's a debate that eventually will be had. How it is resolved, I don't know. Personally, I'd hate to see every country then even say, you know, every man for himself and God help the women and children, because we actually do benefit from trade and investment with other countries. But at the moment, it's all about people and looking after ourselves and how we react both positively and negatively to everything that's going on. And I'll leave you with this one. Craig, do you find out what people, as in politicians right now, are really made of in a situation like this? Well, I think so. Uh, you've got to hold your nerve and you've got to lead. And um, look, I think everyone understands that. I think people are doing their best. No one's slacking off. People are, are working really hard on this on both sides of politics and the officials would be working day and night. Um, staff members, don't forget the staff members, they're expected to work extraordinarily long hours. They're not seeking sympathy from anyone, but I think it is a time of national unity. And, uh, you know, if something good comes out of this, maybe there will be a bit more national unity, even respecting each other's different um, political philosophies. That would be nice. Craig, I'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining me on Peacock Politics. Um, enjoy the fresh air. Enjoy the sounds of the birds, which we could hear during this <laughs> chat. And um, stay healthy, more importantly. All, all good. Thanks very much for having me on. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Tina Matalov, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. 
To hear more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.